Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast featuring the hostess with the mostest and the best Lauren. Uh, I am the best Lauren, and with me, as always, is the hostess with the mostest, Karen Peterson. How are you, Karen? I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm having a little fun with Zoom today. Yes, we've been playing around with Zoom because we actually have a Zoom account now that we're not just like mooching off of, of other institutions. Um, <laughs> uh yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm tired. I got I just got back to New York um, two days ago, Friday afternoon. So I'm a little bit like frazzled and freaked out. And I really haven't been out much other than to go to the grocery. But I'm just like, oh my god, people! Oh my god, like there's things. people, there's sounds, there's traffic things and stuff and like i'm gonna i parked a car i parallel parked in new york city everyone this wow. is the most exciting moment for me and i didn't hit anybody so knock on wood um <laughs> yet yeah oh god yeah good job new york is is an exciting place i also crossed like three lanes of traffic uh getting off wow. the gw bridge so i if you've ever gotten off the gw bridge in New York City, um, you know that this is actually a feat that is deserving <laughs> of praise and love and honor. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about any of that, but I have been in the traffic on the 405, so I feel like I kind of understand <laughs> what you're talking about. Probably, probably. I think that maybe <laughs> the traffic probably moves more slowly here, but it's it's pretty much the same principle. It depends on the day. <laughs> uh so how are you karen uh you know i'm doing all right i'm a little tired but you know things are good my baby sister we had her bridal shower yesterday and she's getting married in july oh uh, yeah she's been taller than me since she was 12 and she's 27 now so it's she's not a baby but she's my baby sister <laughs> <laughs> i was uh, basically the end of my junior year of high school when she was born so it's just like yeah it's just a little weird for me but it's fun she's just uh, I'm so excited for her wedding it's gonna be beautiful so but yeah both of my younger siblings are getting married this year so it's been a lot of wedding <laughs> I'm a little wow. weddinged out and by November I'm gonna be like let's never go to another wedding <laughs> yeah that's that's a lot well with with the some of the restrictions lifting and the pandemic, at least in, in various yeah. places, people feeling a little bit more confident about doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine, yeah, everybody's going to get married and go to the yeah. dentist. You know? Well, it's funny because my sister and her fiance got, got engaged two years ago. And when they set their date for July 21, everyone was just like, why are you waiting two years? And she's like, we just, you know, we're not in a rush. We just want to take our time and do it, do what we really want to do. 
And then, you know, yesterday she and I were talking, she's like, I'm so glad we waited because if we would have done it last year, we would have been one of the ones that either had to resort to zoom or had to move everything and try to find a date. And there's people now that are booking weddings for like 24 because they can't get, (laughs) they can't get in any sooner. Yeah. crazy yeah of course no I I had a friend that got married um last year actually and and she they decided to go ahead with it and I think that they just had like her their immediate families Mm -hmm. um and they it was an outdoor wedding and everything but it it was kind of like either we go ahead with this or we're who knows when we're actually gonna be able to get (laughs) married um and so they decided to just go ahead with it but yeah it's wild but that's that's yeah yeah so it's fun and so like yesterday i got to see some cousins that i haven't seen in years the cousin that i grew up with that i was the closest to i probably haven't seen her since we were like in our 20s so it's been a really long time and yeah it's it's just fun that's one of the fun things about this is like getting to reconnect and yeah yeah Well, so for this episode, we decided that we wanted to talk about book adaptations, (laughs) mostly because poor Karen took one for the team and and watched The Woman in the Window, Better You Than Me. Um, I even even though I'm kind of I'm sad that it isn't a good film because uh, the trailer looked interesting. It's a good cast. Mm Um, and, and it's a, I haven't read the book. It's a popular book. I know some people who have, and there's, there's all of the drama with the author, which <laughs> is, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the book itself, but is still kind of wild. I remember reading about all them being like, what Oh yeah. That, that New Yorker profile is amazing. It, it it's, reads like someone's writing a profile about like Tom Ripley or something. It's, it's yeah, it's wild. And Dan Mallory is not as interesting as Tom Ripley. Let's be clear about that. But, <laughs> but the profile that was written by in the New Yorker was very well written and made his life seem much more fascinating than it really is. Yeah. <laughs> He's basically just a lying liar who lies and somehow managed to manipulate his way into a best-selling novel and yeah that was actually one of the things I was trying to get across in my review of the movie was like the book itself isn't good it just was popular and good is not a prerequisite for popular as we've seen many (laughs) many times even just the past year um like this is just something that happens but yeah so I yeah (laughs) i was like yeah well and and i think that this is a good place to start in talking about book to film adaptations uh, and stuff like that is that there are some bad books that get made into good films Mm -hmm. um and so the book being bad doesn't necessarily mean that that the film is going to wind up bad and some of that is because you know if you've got a good director a good screenwriter um, good actors, et cetera, you can actually take kind of the seed of the story and adapt it and turn it into something that's much better. There's also, I would say there's also a lot of mediocre books that get made into, into very good films. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite sort of mediocre books, I guess, that got, that has been made into a, a fairly decent film or a very decent film um, is The 39 Steps, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock eventually. Um, but the initial, if you ever actually sit down and read the initial John Buchan thriller, it's, it's fine. It's not particularly a great book. It's not particularly like interesting. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, but it's fine. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty much a bog standard thriller and Hitchcock adds all of these things to it. Um, he adds the romance, he adds, uh, you know, he changes some of the relationships, things like that. Also, um, Psycho is a terrible book. <laughs> if you've ever read the, if you've ever read the original book by um, Robert Block, it's not a very, it's a very much a like bog standard pop boilery horror novel, right? It's not particularly well done. It's not particularly well written. Of course, it's been made into one of the, the most iconic films of all time. So you can get bad books that then turn out to be fairly decent films. That did not seem to happen with uh, The Woman in the Window. <laughs> no. And that's the thing. Like, the bones are there. And this is why you can have some, like, mediocre books become good movies. Because if the bones are there for a good story, and then you have the right person adapting it, um, both the writer and the director, then it can really work. And... I honestly feel like that could have happened with the woman in the window. I don't know where the, the breakdown really happened. I mean, there's so many stories about things that went on with this production. It was really meddled with, with the, the studio. It had some disastrous test screenings where people were saying the ending didn't make sense. And it's like, well, then they were probably trying to be too faithful to, <laughs> to the book. Um, and it's frustrating because it was written by the, the adaptation. The screenplay was written by Tracy Letts, who is a good writer. He's done a lot of plays. Like he, he's done some screenplays and he's a good writer. So I don't know what the problem is. And like, this is directed by Joe Wright, who's had two best picture nominations in the last 10 years, you know, with uh, maybe it was longer than 10 years. Uh, Atonement and Darkest Hour. Atonement is a great adaptation of an Ian McEwan novel. I think it's Ian McEwan, but anyway. Um, but yeah, so it's like, I don't know where the breakdown happened, but the problem isn't everyone's like, oh, well, you know, it's just trying to be rear window. And yeah, and it doesn't pretend that it's not trying to be that. The thing is that you can have a good adaptation of rear window. You can have a good reimagining of that story. And this could have done that with just better you know, I, I, I don't even want to say better because Joe Wright and, and Tracy Letts are good, good creators. Um, the actors are amazing. Like it's, it's got an, an incredible cast. So that's where I'm like, I just, I don't know where the problem is. And I, I suspect that part of it is that because the book was so popular, there was once again, that superficial, like, oh, people liked this book. They think this book is good. They want this exact story on the big screen rather than looking at it for what it is and going, hmm, how can we improve on this? And yeah. So it just became yeah. a disaster. Well, yeah, that issue of faithfulness can, mm -hmm. can result in some really bizarre things. Like, uh, one of the films, I, I mean, I don't like the book particularly, and I really don't like the film, um, but The Da Vinci Code. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, is based on such a popular novel. And again, great cast, great director. There is no reason. And really, the novel itself is very cinematic in the sense that you've got these really short, you know, bite-sized chapters that um, are, it's very speedy. It's so fast that sometimes you are able to ignore the many, many problems that the book has. Um, but it's like the film sort of took 
took that and managed <laughs> to just magnify all of the problems. Yeah. Um, because suddenly, I guess that part of it, when you, when you've got that, there's, they're like whole speeches that characters give in the book. And sometimes you're willing to go along with them and sometimes you're not, but the plot itself is so entertaining that you're kind of, you keep on going. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like by putting that up on the screen, uh, and having characters actually say some of these things, which are batshit. I mean, <laughs> three quarters of the Da Vinci Code is just weird <laughs> pop conspiracy theory stuff that just doesn't actually make any historical or religious or philosophical sense. Right. Or artistic sense, right? And then you put that up on the screen and you ha and you put those words into the mouth of like Tom Hanks and, and um, Ian McKellen. And you're like, oh, this is crap. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that this was such crap until this moment. <laughs> but now it really is is like, first of all, no one talks like that. That's not the way the human <laughs> beings talk to each other. But yeah. you get that in those kinds of adaptations where you can take something that is incredibly popular and works partially, I think, because of the medium. I think that the Da Vinci Code works as it, the way that it does and is such a was such a popular book because people were reading it so quickly that they were just kind of skating over the issues with it. They weren't thinking about it too much. The film somehow made you think about it more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a result, you wound up realizing how silly everything was. Yeah. Um, but, so it's a but, but still, the thing is, though, that the movie was still entertaining enough because, you know, you've got like Tom Hanks and Ian McKellen and they're just fun people to watch on screen so it's like even though the the story is crap it's it's just a dumb it's just a dumb story it's still entertaining the woman in the window was not entertaining it's just I don't, at least I mean I know a couple people said oh I thought it was fun it's like all right fine like obviously everyone's entitled to their own opinion but part of the problem with it was just it's so illogical it doesn't like it leans too much into the fact that amy adams's character is just drunk all the time and it basically just plays out like you're the drunk person that just has no idea what's happening and that's just okay fine <laughs> it's just it doesn't work it doesn't work there's too many there's too many gaps there's too many holes too many things that are just never really um explained at all and then on top of that it's just incredibly mean to every woman in it and it just and that was my issue with the book too especially with the the main character anna um because she's just this like sloppy drunk just literally sloshing wine around not caring just kind of like whatever about everything and it doesn't make any sense it completely like she's supposed to be this this renowned child psychologist who was making tons of money before she had to put a pause on her career and you don't get that way if you're not good you know like so she's obviously successful and very educated and there's no sign of that in her character in the book or in the film and it's that was the thing that just made me so angry about it well i yeah, that that's that's a fault of that's a fault of the characterization, obviously. Yep. And mm -hmm. poor poor Amy Adams has not been doing great. No. Um, in terms of her film choices, but it's that I mean that's that's sad, and you you do kind of think that and that 
they would have been able to solve some of those issues right and so That's, maybe yeah so maybe it is exactly as you say that it's too much adherence to the original source material and so again it's the same problem that i had with the da vinci code that magnifying issues that maybe you were more willing to walk past in the source material maybe not but it just sort of makes it so clear and blatant it's just like oh these are really unlikable characters or this is this main character is not believable you know right um so i think that that leads us into like a a good question because um one of the things that i did back back when i was an english student uh back in college was to to actually work with adaptation theory and i'm not going to go into like all of the permutations of adaptation theory but the whole idea about adaptation theory is is the adapting of specifically books novels to the screen and Obviously, you cannot take a novel and just put it up on the screen. Most of the time, it's going to be incredibly long and incredibly boring. Uh, So, of course, when you deal with films that are adaptations, you have to kind of look at what they do. Do they accomplish the same thing that the book does? Do they not? um, You know, how are they kind of successful in, in the transferring of one medium to another? Because really, novels and films, even though we treat them as though they're very closely related films are much more like plays yeah uh because plays are not intended to be read they're intended to be watched uh same thing with films they're you're not you don't read about a film you watch a film right even when you read about a film you had then often go and watch the film because you want to see what it's doing um whereas novels obviously are intended to be read so it's weird that we have this like correlation between the novel and the film as being so closely related when they're not. Uh, But so one of the arguments of adaptation theory is that um, it's about whether or not the film has to simply be slavishly devoted to the book or in order to be successful and in order to be a successful adaptation. Or can it uh, value more the spirit of the novel? So can, can you get more of a sense of what the novel is trying to do in the adaptation. Obviously this this varies from film to film because we do have these films that are um, very good adaptations of very bad books. So it's like, well, the book was terrible. The book has all of these problems. The film actually takes the concepts that the book has and sort of runs with it and does something else with it. Um, But so I, I wanted to kind of start that off as seeing like, what do you think about that? And, um, and maybe talk about some of what we think are some of the most successful uh, book to film adaptations and why they're so successful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I used to always be someone that I, you know, I would read a book, I would love the book, and then I'd go watch the movie and I'd get mad because they, oh, they left out this scene, or I can't believe they cut that character out completely, you know, and it would, it would, just make me crazy and I would just be so frustrated and then I was reading a screenwriting book um actually several years ago um and I don't even remember which one it was now but it was kind of breaking down the differences between novels and plays and and films and um in a way that like it makes sense but it was a way that I had never really thought about it before and it was just basically saying that like novels are mostly about being inside a person's head so whoever the narrator is whether it's an omniscient you know third person narrator or an actual like 
you know specific character or whatever you're inside somebody's head and you're experiencing the story through their their eyes and then a play is really focused on the the dialogue it's about people talking to each other and not talking because sometimes the silence can be even more important and then film is about the visual it's it's really about you know you can obviously because we've had many conversations about silent films you can have an entire movie where nobody says anything to anybody at all but you have these amazing visual experiences and so um when it comes to adapting a novel for a film it's it's really more about finding ways to get across the emotions and the visual you know representation of that story and so you know now i look at at adaptations much differently in fact when they're too closely related to the book i tend it's funny i've gone totally the opposite direction now i'm like well what was the point then of making it into into a movie if you're gonna make it just exactly the same people should read the freaking book then <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely i and actually i was thinking about as, as you're talking about, i was thinking about the recent release of the trailer for um uh gawain and the green knight mm -hmm. uh which is based on this i it's a it's a medieval poem it's written in um it's written in middle english Right? Yeah. So it's like this, and I had to re go in in the Green Knight when I was in uh, when I was in college as part of my my English degree. But I was amazed at how many people obviously had never even heard of the story, and were then looking at just like, oh my god, this guy with like he gets his head removed, and then this happens, this happens. Like, do you not know <laughs> how like fucking insane people <laughs> were in that period their stories are off the wall like are uh -huh. you serious you haven't you have not even heard of this Come when on. people tell me now that like oh the world is the worst it's ever been i'm like have you ever studied roman history <laughs> like oh my gosh no we can Wait. be so much worse than we are not that we're great but we have yeah. some room to be worse i i mean the the literature from from the medieval period is, is bonkers like it yeah. really is oh, yeah. and i mean i i remember reading actually in old when we did old english uh a, one of the few surviving old english poems is a poem called the root which is quite literally a story told from the perspective of the cross that christ was crucified on mm -hmm. um and it starts out like the entire poem is from the first person point of view of this of a tree that then eventually gets turned into the cross right and like all of these all of the different things that it goes through it's it's crazy it's one of those things that like is so far removed from our experience of of contemporary poetry contemporary <laughs> literature or you know what you write stories from this is this is the kind of thing that you're like a 10 year old kid would come up with this like i'm going to tell this her from the perspective of a tree yeah um, <laughs> But it's this really, really, you know, important story. So you get something like Owen in the Green Knight or the Canterbury Tales, if you ever sit down and read the Canterbury Tales, which are again, gross and hilarious and bizarre. And, you know, some of it is just like adolescent humor that you're going like, this is what, like, we have this idea that our ancestors were these incredibly, you know, erudite and intelligent people. It's just like, no, they were making like fart jokes half the time. Well, I mean, obviously. to be fair, they died when they were 40. So if they're making at their height of their career when they're 20, that, I mean, that still tracks with our 
exactly. You got you got to laugh at it, but it's, it's all of this. You know, same thing with something like the Cameron. But so I I think that it's interesting, you know, to take that kind of literature. So how do you adapt that to the screen? Right. And um, there have been actually films that have been made of the Canterbury Tales. Um, uh, and I'm trying to remember who Pasolini did a version that was the adaptation of like three of the Canterbury Tales. Um, there's an adaptation of the Decameron. Uh, and again, these are things that don't necessarily lend themselves to cinema. We don't think of them as having a relationship to cinema. So if you read the original stuff, if you read the original poetry and then you actually watch the film, you have to, you've got the basic plot and that's pretty much it, right? Because you don't have people speaking in middle English. You don't have um, that a lot of the wordplay and things like that, but the visual elements can kind of lend themselves to what the, um, the poetry is, is doing linguistically. Yeah. Um, well, even, oh, sorry. Go on. No, go on. Well, I was just gonna say even something more contemporary, like the Lord of the Rings, um, where there are just pages and pages of people singing songs. There's that entire section before they ever get to River, not Riverdale, uh, Rivendell. <laughs> Riverdale is a, <laughs> I'm never going to not mix those up. But anyway, um, but there's a whole section where they meet Tom Bombadil and Goldilocks. Is that her name? Um, uh, and gold, gold, Goldberry, I think. I don't so, remember. Something like that. It's Tom Bombadil <laughs> and his wife. It's, it's, yeah, I have it's been no idea time. what Tolkien was doing. <laughs> no, and nobody does. I think he was smoking a little bit too much leaf himself right there. But, um, but that's the thing. It's like, that's not something that, that translated to the screen not that it couldn't you could do some really interesting things visually with the story of tom bombadil but translating the lord of the rings books which are really about this this group of people that have committed to go and destroy something for the you know for the purpose of saving the world and saving humanity in all its forms having this side story where they journey with this guy um and it's just, you know, this kind of psychedelic experience. It doesn't fit into the movies. It doesn't take, that does not take anything away from the people who love that character in the book, but it didn't fit into the movie that, that Peter Jackson was making. Yeah. And, and that's okay. And, and that's the thing is like, there's a lot of great books where like you're saying, or, or plays or, you know, these epic poems, the Odyssey, you know, and the Iliad, there's, there are adaptations of those. And there's a lot of stuff in those stories that just don't work when you're trying to adapt it to film. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that the concern always has to be about the medium and, yeah. and, and like you say, so the, so Tom Bombadil, it's still a question about whether or not the Tom Bombadil section works in the context <laughs> of the book. I know people who love it. So it's like, well, I don't want to take anything it, away from them, but you know, and it's a lot, it can be a lot of fun, but it doesn't, it's not essential. Right. It's not, and it's it's this it's the sort of thing that as an editor I would have like been like, is this story <laughs> necessary? We can cut yeah. this out, and you know you don't really change the the, the rest exactly. of the narrative. Um, but yeah, so so but it cinematically, like you said, it would never work. It would not work because it would stop the film mm -hmm. dead, um, and people would just be like, what the hell is going on? It would stretch out an already long film and long series of films even further. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that there are places 
even in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Jackson is too dedicated to the books. He's way too um, intense about, you know, oh, we have to adapt everything. We have to, we have to include all of the characters. And there are definitely places where it's like, I, I think that you need to move on. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I was always very angry because um, with the with the final film, because they, he cuts out the scouring of the Shire. At the I end, know. Which I think, and now again, that, that in contrast to something like the Tom Bombadil narrative, the scouring of the Shire is very important to the whole kind of meaning of yeah. the story. Uh, because it's essentially saying that every place has been mm -hmm. affected. It's not just Gondor, it's not just um, Rohan, it is also the Shire, this place that was supposed to be safe and protected and you know, completely removed from this, this, the violence of the outside world has also had this rot seep into it and has to be cleaned up at the end. And, and the, the only ones that are able to do that are the ones that were looked at as like the troublemaker yeah. kids, those, you know, those, those pesky kids who went off and and had life altering experiences that gave them the perspective and the the courage to do what needed to be done when they got home yeah i exactly you get mary and pippin coming back and they they have like they've changed they have changed mm -hmm. in a massive way and they're able to kind of bring all of that back and say like okay i'm going to protect we're going to protect our home and we're part of this world yeah um in a way that and, and I think that the film kind of shirks that yep. a lot. I agree. And, and so, with five endings, they still couldn't get that right. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And I understand like, you know, it. I, I don't really want the Return of the King to be longer than it already <laughs> is. Um, but it does, it does kind of feel like that there was a missed opportunity there and that it does kind of ignore some of the concerns of the book because it allows for this it allows for this space where some there there is a place that hasn't been affected really yeah that hasn't really um uh, experienced what the rest what the rest of the world is experiencing and that's that's unfortunate but so that's that's where you begin to to question you know what what does the film have to do in order to be successful you know can the film so can you make a film about an incredibly um misogynist text right that then kind of flips it on its head and treats it as a critique of the misogyny that is inherent within the text and so you can get something like um american psycho which is an incredibly misogynist text uh written by a misogynist even though he kind of tries to be like no i'm making a commentary it's like no, no. read the book it's it's <laughs> not if he's trying to make a commentary he's indulging himself way too much he hates women and it's obvious yeah and then you've got the film that is basically a critique of all of that. <laughs> yep. But by still using the uh, the structure of the novel, the characterizations, et cetera, but the way that the film is made itself and the fact that you've got a, a female director um, changes the meaning of the book. So, so on the one end, you're like, well, is American Psycho a successful adaptation? Not really because it doesn't maintain the spirit of the book at all, but it does something very different with a very problematic text. I don't know, I find that interesting. Uh, I agree too, but I, I mean, well, I mean, I agree with you that it's a great adaptation. I don't know that I would say it's the, the criteria for whether it's successful is its faithfulness. So what, what would you think is the criteria of 
uh, for success mm. at that level. I don't know. I, <laughs> I guess I haven't really thought about it in, in those terms, but I don't know. To me, a successful adaptation is one where fans of the book also enjoy the movie, regardless of how similar or different it is. I, I think that that's a good, that's a good comment. Um, yeah, I, I would probably agree with that. Although, do fans of the book enjoy American Psycho? I mean, if you love American mm. Psycho, see, that's, that's the question with American Psycho. True. Or, or with I don't anything. actually know anybody who's read the book. <laughs> I read the book. Besides I read you. the book back in, you know, back in grad school. It was not a pleasant yeah. experience. Doesn't seem um, like it would be. It was very, very distressing. Uh, but, you know, and that is one of those books that because it's told from this very, very close first person perspective, there's an open question about how you read it. So you can read it as this, as completely straight in terms of it's this self-indulgent misogynist fantasy, or you can read it as it's critical of self-indulgent, self-indulgent misogynist fantasy. And so you can read it both ways, depending upon how, how you want to take it essentially. So I guess at that point, you could argue that the film the film chooses one of those readings mm-hmm. and goes yeah. with it. Um, it's not. It's not completely out. It's not changing particularly the the content of the book, but it is a very particular interpretation of the content. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's it's an interesting issue. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's it's an interesting issue and whether or not, like you said, whether or not something is successful or something isn't successful um, is kind of how you're defining yeah. success. <laughs> uh, so what are some of your favorite like book to film adaptations where you think that the the film really succeeded with with its source material and did something really great with it or where it actually kind of exceeded oh i have a few where the book the movie is actually better than the book but um but just as far like just going along the lines of like things that were similar but did a good job with uh the movie adaptation i would say one for me is um bridget jones's diary which yeah the the book um it really is written in kind of diary format and sometimes it's kind of like bullet journal format where it's like just a lot of it's a collection of notes and you're getting the sense of of Bridget's life not through a you know a a spelled out written narrative but through just kind of like getting glimpses of her experiences throughout the course of this year and I think that the adaptation of that into the screen and really turning that into something where as you're reading the book, you're like, oh yeah, like you can see, you know, you can see the movie playing out the scenes that you're reading in the book. So I think that's a really well done, um, really well done adaptation. Uh, Man, I love that movie so much. And I like the book a lot. Um, (laughs) Although it's funny because I feel like, um, Daniel Cleaver is even more of a cad in the book. And it's like, he sucks in the movie, but he's even worse in the book. Well, I, I think that having Hugh Grant play that character mm-hmm. sort of helps him. You you get why she is so charmed. Yes. Him. Yeah. And that was necessary. And just like, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just like, yeah, he's really fucking charming. He's also a creep, <laughs> but he's really charming. Yeah. Like you, you get that 
that sort of that sort of thing. As, it's funny. The first time I saw the film, I hadn't read the book when I, I first saw the film, and I remember like hating. I didn't know anything <laughs> about the film. I hated Mark Darcy. Like I hated him. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, what a jerk! Why would she ever be interested in that guy? Like, oh my god! Like I, I absolutely thought it was just like that she was going to wind up with Cleaver or something like that. And then by the end of the film, it's like, oh, he's amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He's the best. I love him so, so much. Yeah. Hmm. I will say there is no fighting in the street in the book. That was a great addition for the movie. <laughs> Which, yeah, is definitely a, a needed addition. Oh, especially to the tune of It's Raining uh, Men. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. What's uh, one of yours? Well, go ahead. Going off of that, uh, one of the films that I wanted to refer to was um, Pride and Prejudice from 1940. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those where if you say, okay, is this a good adaptation of the book? No, because it really, it goes hard on the comedy. It doesn't really deal with the kind of social issues or things like that. At that level, the, the, the miniseries is obviously the most kind of faithful to, to the concerns of the novel, but it is so much fun. It's so silly. It is like the weirdest kind of Hollywood vision of what Regency period England looks like. And it's not even close to any sort of reality. It's Hollywood land, right? Um, And one of the things that I I really love about it, and it's something that the book probably couldn't do and that no other adaptation has even attempted, is that it takes Lady Catherine de Burr and it makes her into this like really wily feminist. And you don't realize it until nearing the end where there's this whole thing, this whole, like the the final scene between her and Lizzie, she is basically, she's testing Lizzie the entire time. And she goes out and Darcy is sitting in the carriage. Mm. And Lady Catherine says, just like, oh, this girl is amazing. She is perfect for you. (laughs) Just like, I insulted the hell out of her. Now you go in there, you get her. Like, it's this wonderful moment of just like, of completely upending expectations, including the expectations of the novel itself. Because obviously Catherine, Lady Catherine de Burr is not like that. (laughs) Um, She's, yeah. It's play, uh, she's played by Edna Mae Oliver, who is a very recognizable character actress. She is like the haughtiest uh, uh, woman in the world, but she's hilarious. And kind of the interplay between her and Greer Garson and then her and, and Olivier is just wonderful. Again, completely outside of what the novel was trying to do. But I like the fact that you that it worked in from this character that is so hateful in the book it actually like turned her into this really interesting version of, of Victorian womanhood. And I quite liked that. So I, I love the 1940 Pride and Prejudice, I've just, which I've just spoiled for everybody, but still it's loads of fun. <laughs> nice. Um, another one of mine is A Wrinkle in Time. The Ava DuVernay uh, yeah, version. Yeah, that's a good one. The book is good. I really like the book. I really loved what Ava DuVernay did with that story, bringing it into a more modern time. And uh, so obviously there are some just technological differences um, between the story from when it was written, which I can't remember exactly when the book was first published, but a lot of years ago, 1963, it looks like. Um, And so it's, it's, 
you know, the story is a bit different 50 years later when she's making the movie. Um, but it needs to be. But I really like how it it's still, even with those changes, it it really captures the essence of that story. And you've got um, you know, you've got Meg, who is this just this like fierce girl who just won't be stopped. You know, she knows what she needs to do in life. She uh, even when she's not sure, she's still, she's very headstrong. And I think that, that um, giving that character, um, like casting her as, as someone who's biracial, I think does really help with modernizing that story because the book written in the sixties, you know, having it be about this girl in the sixties that that was enough, but in, you know, the 2010s or whatever, um, you needed a, a different, you needed something a little bit more as to why she's being kind of, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like why they're, why she's kind of being singled out at school as this problem kid and, and why she's still being looked down on, even though she's clearly really smart and why she just has all these, these problems. And it's, you know, there's, I, I like how, there are it addresses issues of racism without being like super overt about it and without um not that's not even the right word but i don't know if i don't know if i'm making any sense on this but um i I think it was a good way to modernize the story is what i'm trying to say yeah i i think that you are making sense and that that's a good example of um of taking of again taking the source material and changing it a little bit right so adding Mm -hmm. that extra element um change you know changing some of the relationships a bit in order to update it so you, you yeah what you say you're talking about a book that was written in 19 in the 1960s which doesn't have which doesn't contain you know this the the um some of the concerns that the film does and is kind of moving fo- and so the film sort of moves that forward a little bit it's like yeah. okay this is a really good story about kind of being an outsider and uh and being treated as, as like you say this problem child this makes it even more interesting if you are talking about uh, a girl who is biracial mm-hmm. um and so is having to grapple with that problem in you know whatever two, 2000 i forget what year that film came out 2000 17 2018 something like that yeah something like that um and so that kind of that adds an extra layer to it and and it brings it out of the safe zone too because Mm -hmm. like you say a a little white girl is um you know okay that's interesting but if you're talking about a, a a little black girl who's dealing with all of this you have you've added another layer to the story and you've made it feel more urgent i think yeah yeah um so uh, one of the other films that I, I wanted to mention uh, as sort of a film that completely departs from, it's funny, it, it's, it departs from the actual text of the story, but I think it's the best representation of the character. Um, one of my favorite books is The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I love Patricia Highsmith, but I do not like the adaptation of The Talented Mr. Ripley um, with Matt Damon and Jude Law, even though it's very faithful in a lot of ways to the book, but it takes things, it treats Ripley's homosexuality, especially at too, it actually treats it too overtly. And it makes that kind of his, his neurosis or whatever, it turns it into a neurotic element of his character. 
um, and the reasoning behind everything that he does. One of the wonderful things about Ripley in the book is that he does he does what he does because that's who he is. It doesn't have anything to do with repression. It doesn't have anything to do with um, with you know repressed sexuality or anything like that. It's not really a desire to to you know have sex with Dickie. It is a desire to be Dickie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really what this is about. And and um, I think that the film misses the mark on that. The film that hits it really well is Purple Noon. Um, which was made in, I think, the late 60s um, with uh, Ellen Delon. And in a lot of ways, it departs from a lot of the elements of the book that I kind of wish it didn't. I think that it, it botches the ending a bit. But the characterization of Ripley himself, that kind of desire to inhabit another human being and to become someone that you want to be by essentially taking over someone else's life is so well done. And Delon fits the character so well um, that I I just absolutely adore that film. And that's one where it does depart a great deal from the book, but the characterization is perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, One that is miles better as a movie than it is as a a book (laughs) Um, is Forrest Gump. I had no idea that was actually a book. It was. It was a book <laughs> written by Winston Groom. And uh, it's funny because he also did write a sequel to the book. And the opening line is like, don't ever let anybody make a movie about your life because they're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's the the book is I mean, the movie is so different from the book. The The, the essential elements are there. You've got Forrest Gump, who... Um, has a mental disability that's never really defined what it is um and he goes through just kind of like falls into one amazing situation after another that is that is true and he has a very close relationship with his mom and there's the girl jenny who pops in and out of his life every now and then but the actual um the actual experiences that he has are just as as much as the movie is just like so far-fetched and like wow that wouldn't ever really happen like (laughs) it makes sense and seems possible (laughs) compared to the stuff that happens to him in the book where he ends up in the space program he ends up running like naked down the freeway with Raquel Welch um (laughs) yeah like (laughs) I'm trying to remember some other specific things that happen in the book but but it's one of those where I mean that they got the essence of the character they got the essence of the story and then turned it into something that has those fantastical elements but but makes sense and just like it's fun to watch but the book is just it's batshit (laughs) yeah well, based on that, we did have a question that I actually think that we've, we've largely answered. I <laughs> have not answered it yet. <laughs> you haven't, haven't answered nope. it yet. All right. So the question from at uh, Noah underscore Saturn is, what is your favorite book to film adaptation where the film is better than the source material? Um, I, I would say that Psycho is definitely mine, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and again, I think that, you know, you have to be aware that very few people are aware that Psycho was originally a novel. Um, it's, it's not a good novel. It's very overwritten and it's kind of, 
bizarre and and actually if I remember correctly Norman is not like this kind of sympathetic young man he's this sort of gross uh middle-aged motel proprietor and it, it gives things it makes everything a lot seedier and a lot darker and and also in some ways a lot more obvious like one of the things that, that Tony Perkins brings to that part is that he is so sweet and likable in a lot of ways and so kind of sad um, and you understand why Marion has such sympathy for him at the beginning and then of course you know as the film goes on and you you see him protecting his mother etc um, and then you you find out things about him that kind of complicate that but he, he's so likable in a lot of ways that you kind of um, it upends some of your expectations. The book doesn't really have that. Uh, he's not particularly likable. He's not a particularly charming character. Um, you don't think that he is, you know, sympathetic in any way. And so when some of the twists happen, it's it's a lot easier to take in some ways and a lot less shocking and well done. So that's definitely mine. So Karen, what is yours? My very favorite book to film adaptation where the film is miles better than the source material is Jojo Rabbit adapted from Caging Skies by Christine Lunens. <laughs> I should have known. You should have known. I should have known. I forgot. And you would have known if you had read Caging Skies because <laughs> that book is terrible. <laughs> and it ended up becoming one of my favorite movies of the last like 10 or 15 years it's um <laughs> and it, so yeah um the book is about this this kid jojo butzler who um becomes close with the the jewish girl that his mother is hiding in the walls of their house that part is true um but <laughs> the difference is there are, there are many but the key differences between the book and the movie are that jojo betzler is um he's like 17 when the book opens and the reason that he's not able to be conscripted to go to war is because he <laughs> In that training accident that we see at the beginning of Jojo Rabbit, his hand is actually blown off because of the grenade. And so he's injured, he's disabled, he's not able to go fight in the war. And this is something that he takes very personally. And um, and so when he discovers the girl living in their house, um, at first he's it's it's not cute because he's he's older, and so he's extremely mean to her um and but then also becomes just kind of more and more obsessed with her and what i love about the way that taika adapted that is because of the fact that jojo is so young and so impressionable like him having this little crush on this girl it it makes sense and it's really sweet in the book jojo becomes obsessed with elsa and to the point where it, it just becomes very creepy and disturbing and he basically turns her into a captive and the war ends halfway through the book so i think i think i remember you talking about this when yeah we about jojo rabbit yeah that's mm -hmm. really that's not great <laughs> no it's not because that means you still have half a book where Elsa does not know the war is, is over and Jojo is keeping her captive and it's it just gets really disturbing and I mean it's it, it's uh 
the way that that Christine Lennon's wrote it, it's interesting to, on one level, to get into his mindset of you know his obsession, but it's it's not done in a way where you're sure if you're supposed to be for him or against him and that's a little disturbing um in in the way kind of like the kind of like the show you on netflix which is from the perspective of the stalker and i saw so many people who were like joe is the best i love him and it's like no you're not supposed to he's the bad guy here and that's kind (laughs) of how caging skies is it's like you're not supposed to like and root for jojo because he like by the end of the book he's like 25 26 years old still keeping this girl captive and um knowing perfectly well what he's doing but constantly rationalizing it Mm -hmm. and so it's so much you know it just I think I mean I already loved Jojo Rabbit but then reading the book and seeing where the like what inspired that story and just going like wow this is miles different um like they are so far apart and it just made me appreciate the film even more to see like, wow, he managed to, to create this beautiful, beautiful story out of that. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting to, to talk about like, so changing the character's age makes such a big difference just does, to begin yeah. with. That, mm-hmm. you know, going from a 17 year old boy that you're like, you, you should know better, right? In yeah. a lot of ways. Um, but a little child is just like, well, of course you just absorb what is what you're being taught. You're, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how you're living. And so of course the, you know, you're the small child is going to be like, ah, well, Jews have horns, right? It's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> just like, oh, okay. And then also that willingness to accept changes to his world also. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had completely forgotten that that was originally a book. <laughs> and now that you talked about it again, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds really, really dark. <laughs> it's, so <laughs> dark. it's so dark and so disturbing. <laughs> Watch the movie. It's so good. Uh, yeah. Um, so any other thoughts about book to film adaptations? I think we've kind of covered everything that I was sort of interested in talking about. Was there anything else that you wanted to say, including about the terribleness of Woman in the Window? (laughs) Uh, I, I think I've pretty much summed it up, but I think that, I think it's important to, when you have a book that you love and there's an adaptation of it, I think it's, it's important to just kind of remember, um, that the movie is not going to be the same because it's not supposed to, mm-hmm. you know, there, there'd be no reason to, to adapt it if it was going to be exactly the same and just try to enjoy the experience of your story for something mm-hmm. different. And, and, you know, cause that's, that can be really um, dis- disruptive, I think, to the experience if you're just constantly holding on to Well, they changed this and they did that. Like just, yeah let go and just try to try to evaluate each one for what they are separately yeah i i think that there are definitely times particularly recently where we where filmmakers are so worried about pleasing fans of the original material mm-hmm. that they they wind up making bad films and and you know you talk about some of the adaptations of really when you look at superhero films it's all they're adaptations of characters sometimes they're direct adaptations of things that happen in graphic novels um and, and that is an adaptation, but they're so worried about, about the fans being angry or the fans being disappointed that you don't actually consider what is best for the film itself and what doesn't a, a, you know, update to the medium. 
because it is again it's two different mediums you're talking about a literary medium that is is entirely linguistic and you're talking about a visual a visual and aural medium right that is mm -hmm. that has a whole bunch of other elements to go into it and to be way too devoted to the original text can can really be detrimental to what to the film itself because the film is a separate piece of art yes exactly Yes, well, so I think that that is going to close us out for today. We we're talking about some interesting stuff. Um, and as always, we are very, very grateful to our wonderful patrons who continue to help us keep the lights on, keep us hosted. Um, we do have some new stuff that will be coming up for our patrons. Uh, we're going to have a May bonus episode soon. And I think that by, by the time that this is going to be published, we will have decided which which that will be and we're we're also going to work on um trying to get trying to be certain that patrons can actually vote on these things if you're not on twitter we tend to run our polls on twitter um so watch out for that and then right now there are a whole bunch of other fun things that are up on our patreon so thank you so much to Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nina, uh, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. And if you'd like to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. Uh, we're really, really grateful for that. And also you get some fun, like extra stuff and more extra stuff, which we keep on promising, but we are doing once yeah. we're like all calm again. I personally am not calm at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but you but will get there. I will get there. Uh, so, you know, keep an eye out for that. And we also have our Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where you can buy some of our merch, including masks. Some of us are not required to wear masks anymore sometimes, but also probably you should continue to because we want to all be careful. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we also have uh, our Ko-Fi, that's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you want to just toss us a couple of dollars, but you don't want to make the commitment to the Patreon yet. Uh, our website is citizendamepod.com, where you can read Karen's review of The Woman in the Window, which definitely inspired me to never watch that film. <laughs> um, and it's a very well-written review, too, so definitely Thank go and you. check that out. And there will be some more reviews coming up and, uh, and various other features. You can also email us. Uh, at citizendamepod at gmail.com and we will try we try to answer emails we definitely check them every once in a while if we don't get back to you you know just give us a minute sometimes we get behind on things uh, we are also on twitter and instagram at citizendamepod where you can contact us and let us know how much you love us uh, and we are also available individually i am on twitter and instagram at lh business karen where are you I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for today. We will talk to y'all later. Bye. Mademoiselle, where is Jesus sitting? In the middle. Good. He and his disciples are breaking bread. And what drink? Wine. They drank wine. Splendid. And one final question. How many wine glasses are there on the table? One, the Holy Grail. Open your eyes. No single cup. No chalice. Well, that's a bit strange, isn't it? Considering both the Bible and standard Grail legends celebrate this moment as the definitive arrival of the Holy Grail. Hmm. Now, Robert, you could be of help to us.
If you'd be so kind as to show us the symbols for man and woman, please. Oh, no balloon animals. Huh. <laughs> I can make a great duck. <laughs>